21 through 26. But now, a righteousness from God, apart from law, has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Christ Jesus to all who believe. There is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just in the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus Christ. Amen. What a beautiful thought. We are filthy rags. We are sinners. And God justifies us in his sight through the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. That is something to celebrate. That is something to get excited about. Let's get into our prayer of confession. O heavenly and precious Father, glorious King of kings and Lord of lords, holy of holies, we are blessed by your love for us. We are blessed through the blood of your Son, Jesus Christ. So let's just take time right now, just to take time to think through the week. Think about the things that we have thought, that we have said, things that we have done that were not pleasing in your sight so that we can give them over to you. Let's do that right now. Lord God, we love you. We love you for the great king. We love you because you are our Abba Father. We love you because you have chosen us to be a part of your glorious family. We love you, Lord God, because you first loved us. Thank you. Thank you for all that you have done. Thank you for what you will continue to do in each and every one of our lives. Lord, we are weak and we are pathetic without you. We have no strength. You give us strength. We have no vision. You give us your vision. We have no way of accomplishing anything good for your kingdom, only through you and the spirit that you put into us. And we thank you for that. We are blessed and we are truly loved by you. And we pray these things in your son's glorious name. Amen. Today, our confession of faith is from the Westminster Shorter Catechism, and it is question 70. I will read the question, and together we will read the answer. The question, which is the seventh commandment? The seventh commandment is, you shall not commit adultery. Amen. Now, if children want to come down for children's church, Good morning, everybody. Good to see you guys. Oh, that is perfect. All right. Well, guess what brought with me today some friends that I want to share with you. 
10 friends that I brought from home. Look at these guys. These guys have been in our family for years. My daughter, a lion, my daughter and my son used to play with these guys every single day. And now, when my granddaughter, Audrey, comes over, that's one of the first things that she does. She will come into the house, and then she will come up and go into the basket and grab these guys. And we'll come down and we'll play. We'll pretend we go on safaris and that we meet tigers and monkeys and bears. Yes. Really? Wait a minute. I swore I brought 10 of them with me. Let's count them. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. I am missing somebody. They must have got away somehow. I put them right here. Can you help me find them? Let's kind of let's look around and see if we can find the lost one. Come on. Let's go over here. Do you see anyone? No. Maybe under the pews. Do you see someone? Nobody? How about over here? You see? Wait a minute. What's that right there? Oh, could you grab him? For, oh, thank Yes, put him back with his friends. Look at that. Yay. Oh, it's the lost sheep. Look at that. He's one of the new ones to the family, so he's not very acquainted with everybody else. But you know something? This reminds me of a story that Jesus told his friends in the Bible about the shepherd and the lost sheep. You want to hold on to him? You can hold on to him. Now, does anybody know what a shepherd is? Anybody? Go ahead. That's right. You see, sheep are not... Okay, you can hold on to the line. You see, the sheep are not one of the smartest of God's creatures, unfortunately. And they need a lot of help. They need someone to show them where the water is so they can drink. They need someone to show them where food is so that they can eat. And they also need someone to protect them because there's no way they can protect themselves. And so a good shepherd does all of those things. And so in this story that Jesus told us, there was a shepherd that woke up one morning, and he goes out into the pasture where the sheep were sleeping, and he starts counting because he had 100 sheep, and he's counting the sheep, and he gets to 97, 98, 99. Where's the 100th sheep? He was missing. And so being a good shepherd, so how do he make sure that everybody... Of, and he goes out and he searches for the lost sheep. Go ahead. Well, I couldn't bring a hundred friends with me. That would be pretty, pretty funny. Yes. So he goes out and he travels for miles looking for the lost sheep. And he's going over rugged terrain and he's traveling for hours and hours. And then finally, in the distance, he hears... He hears a sheep start crying. You know what sound a sheep makes when he's crying? Go ahead. That's exactly right. And he heard that cry, and he runs over to the sheep. And when he found him, he was tired, and he was scared and hungry. And shepherd picked up the sheep and put him on his shoulders and carried him all the way back home to the rest of the sheep and the family. And when the shepherds saw them, they celebrated because he found a lost sheep. Now, isn't that a great story? Now, 
Jesus, every time he tells a story in the Bible, always has a lesson that we want to learn. And in this story, we, his children, are his sheep. God created each and every one of us, and the Bible calls us God's children. And all of God's children are God's sheep in his flock. Yeah. And guess who the shepherd is? Does anybody know? That's right. Jesus is the good shepherd. I know, it's a nice line. Jesus is the good shepherd. <laughs> and, when, and when he saw that, and what happens sometimes is that when the sheep grow up, they don't believe in God, and they don't believe that Jesus is his son. And so just like the shepherd in the story, that lost child of God, what does Jesus do? What do you think? Yes, he goes out and he searches for him. And then he'll go as far as he has to go to find his lost child. And when he finds him, he helps them to believe that God is a true God and Jesus is his true son who died on the cross for our sins. And then when that child believes, there is a celebration in heaven and all the angels will dance and sing. Isn't that wonderful? So this week, what I want you guys to do, because we all know in our families or maybe at school or in your neighborhoods, your friends who you're playing with, we all know someone who doesn't know Jesus. And Jesus wants us to tell them all about him so that there could be more celebration in heaven. So you think about that this week, okay? So let's pray. Heavenly Father, glorious King of kings and Lord of lords, thank you, Lord God. Thank you for being a good shepherd to each and every one of us. Thank you for putting it on our hearts to want to love and to seek you out. Thank you for your love and your grace and most of all your sacrifice. And we pray these things in your son's name. Amen. Thank you. Got your packets for you. Oh, no, I think they should stay there. Yeah. yeah. No, let's just put the offering right behind the monkey, and everything will be fine. Thank you, Wally. Good job. Um, let's go before our Heavenly Father in prayer, shall we? Lord, thank you that you are a God who seeks and saves the lost. Uh, indeed, we have in the past in the church made much of the idea of people as seekers. But when we look at the scripture, there is only one seeker, and it is you. And you have come to save your people from their sins. Lord, thank you that you have called us by name and brought us to yourself and caused us to be moved from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the dear Son, Jesus Christ. Thank you that our salvation is secure. Thank you that as your sheep, we know your voice and we listen to you and we follow you and no one will snatch us out of your hand because your Father, who is greater than all, has decreed and no one can snatch us out of the Father. 
Lord, what a precious gift is the assurance of our salvation, not only in the world to come, but in this world as well. Lord Jesus, we ask that you would incline your ear and your heart towards your children this morning and listen to the things that concern us, as you have promised to do. And then take those prayers and perfect them and bring them to your Father and say, Father, a blood-bought child has a need. And we ask, O King, that you would listen to the need and take appropriate action. And we're confident that you will do that. Therefore, we come to you this morning, God, on behalf of little baby Josiah, Don and Kathy Schilling's grandson, and we ask that you would continue to aid his little body as it gathers strength, and we pray for you to protect his health and guard his development and raise him up and bring him to an adulthood where he serves you with his whole heart and mind. We pray that you would be with Kelly and Nathan and Don and Kathy as they are grieving the loss of the other two babies that Kelly lost. Let them have their grief be tinged by the comfort that there are two beautiful, bright spirits waiting for them in heaven who they will be able to know for an eternity, even though they were denied that opportunity here in this world. We lift up Father Greg Flug, and we thank you that his wounds seem to be healing. We thank you that the doctors were able to accomplish what they wanted to accomplish with the, the minor procedure, and that Greg's spirits are good. And we just ask, O King, that you would continue to sustain him in body and in mind. And we pray, Lord, that you would raise him up and bring him back home and bring him back to church. Father, we pray for those who are grieving, whose hearts have been broken, uh, who have endured a loss of a loved one. And it may be a recent loss or it may be one further back, and yet the pain does not seem to be appreciably better than it was uh, in those early days. Minister, O oh Lord, to grieving hearts and comfort those who mourn, as you've promised to do in your scriptures. Let the fact that there is someone waiting for them on the other side be uh, a spur and a goad to cause them to long for heaven itself and to not have our hearts so knit to this earth and the things of this earth. We pray, Father, for our church and all of the churches in Youngstown who believe the Bible and teach the Bible, whatever differences we might have with them on important points of theology, they are your people, the sheep of your hand. And we would rejoice in their strengthening and in their prosperity and in their well-being in spiritual things. So bless the pastors this morning that are preaching the word and give them unction. Bless the hearers who are hearing and give them hearts that are inclined to hear and obey the word. Be with those pastors who are enduring harsh criticism and difficulty. Be with those who are close to despair and who live in fear. Teach them, O oh Lord, that they too 
exist in your hand. Even though they are shepherds, they are also sheep. And you hold them in your omnipotent right hand. We pray for our leaders and those in authority, for our governing uh, uh, figures, for the president, for the Supreme Court, for the Congress, for the governor. And we ask, O oh Lord, that you would bless them. We may have deep disagreements and even antipathy towards many of the things that they think are important or right. And yet we do pray a blessing upon them simply because the things that they decide to do affect us. And we would ask that you would give them the ability to make wise decisions and that it would tend towards our protection and well-being so that we might live quiet lives as the Bible commands and work with our hands and live out our faith and pass it on to our children and those around us who want to hear about Jesus. There are other things that we could lift up, O oh Father. Uh, memory is short and time also flees. And you have said uh, in your scriptures that you don't need to be informed about anything that's going on in your world. So we add whatever silent unspoken prayers we can to this prayer and then we offer up to you the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. We're going to, uh, the deacons are going to come forth with the offering that has been pre-collected. Please stand up and let's sing the doxology together. Praise God from who? Father, it's a, a little song that we can take for granted and not think about the words. But you are to be praised. You are to be glorified. You are to be lifted up because you are the God who brings all blessings to us. And these material things are just a small indication, just a token of your blessings and the inclination of your heart towards us. We thank you for these gifts and we thank you for the givers. And we ask that you would multiply them and use them to accomplish your work. In Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> Our text this morning is the same as it has been for the last few weeks. And I think we'll have maybe one more week in this passage in Ephesians 1 before we move on. I was listening to uh, one prominent preacher. I've been listening to a lot of preaching on Ephesians because it's, it's actually very difficult, um, given the structure of this opening passage, to figure out how to structure sermons. And so um, I'm, I'm a, a firm believer in the, uh, in the uh, preacher's copyright, which is if you're going to copy somebody, copy it right. And, um, and, and so I'm burglarizing ideas from other people I respect and um, just benefiting from it. 
And one, one preacher said, you know, the first part of the book of Ephesians is the treasury of the church. It's, it's, it's Paul's description of the, the, our savings account, our wealth in Christ Jesus. And then it goes through to the duty of the church, and then it goes to, to the, the things which would oppose the church. But these are our treasures. Ephesians chapter 1, we're going to once again pick up the last two words in verse 4. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Father, we ask this morning that you would make your book live for us, and that you would show us yourself in your word, and then you would show us ourselves in your word, and close the gap between what we are and what you mean for us to be by means of the power of the marvelous Holy Scriptures, set on fire by the Spirit of God. Your word is a hammer that breaks the rock. So break our rocks right now, O oh Lord. Anything that is raised up against you in our souls, in our hearts, break it. And O oh Lord, strengthen anything that's in us that is wavering and weak, that needs to be strong. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, when I was a child, I spent large amounts of time in... Uh, this little town, small town in the Missouri boot heel in southeast Missouri in this little town called Hayti. And it was the 70s on into the 80s. And it was a time when uh, parents didn't helicopter. And I was definitely not helicoptered. And I had free run of the whole town by the age of seven or eight. I'd get on my bike and I'd find my friends and we would go anywhere and everywhere we wanted to go. We would ride the shady streets where the old nice houses were in town. We'd go out to the ditch and go fishing. We'd monkey around in the cotton fields looking for snakes. We would just do all kinds of things. And the only place that was off limits to me was the pool hall downtown because that was where the bad people hung out. And, uh, that didn't stop me from going to the pool hall. It was just off limits. And one of our favorite activities, though, that my friends and I would engage in was riding around town on our bikes looking for discarded soda bottles. Now, in those days, and many of you will remember this, soda was mostly sold in glass bottles. I don't think I saw an aluminum can until sometime in the early 80s. The cans, if you got them, were steel. And, but mostly it was sold in bottles. And when you bought a soda, you paid a deposit on that bottle, which was automatically included in the purchase price of the soda. And the bottles back then 
were thick, tough glass bottles. They were not like these weenie ones that they sell today. And uh, they wouldn't break, for instance, very easily if you just tossed them out the window of a moving car. And when you finished that soda, you brought it back to the grocery store or the gas station or wherever you bought it, and they would, you would give them the soda and they would give you back a dime. And that was the deposit. And then the grocery store owner would put those empty bottles in these wonderful uh, wooden racks. And at the end of the week, the soda guy would come around to deliver new soda, and he'd take the old ones back to the bottler, and they would be washed and sterilized and refilled. And, uh, and then they'd bring them back full of fresh soda. And it was the best recycling program that I ever saw. And they would spread their sugary goodness all over the land. By the way, do you say soda or pop here? Pop. Well, that's one of your errors and sins, I guess. <laughs> now, if somebody was a fool enough to toss that bottle away after paying that deposit on it when they bought the soda, and if I was lucky enough to find it, I could take it back to the grocer and I could get that dime back for myself, and then I could go and buy candy with it. And all of those bottles, if you looked at them, they had a message printed on them that identified the true owner of the bottle. And so, for instance, in, in Haiti, I can still remember, property of the Coca-Cola Bottling Company of the Mid-South, Memphis, Tennessee. Or if I was drinking Pepsi, property of Pepsi-Cola Bottlers, Jonesboro, Arkansas. And all you had to do was go to any store or any gas station that sold that particular brand of beverage, and by contract with the bottler, that owner of that business had to give you back a dime. And then the bottler would credit the dime to the seller. That was the arrangement. You see, when you held that bottle in your hands, you possessed the property of the bottler. And the bottler would pay you to get their property back. In other words, the bottler would always redeem what belonged to them. That's what redemption means. Redemption is a price paid to get something or someone back that you own from somebody that has it. In the Old Testament, the word redemption usually referred to a ransom that was paid when hostiles would come and raid your village or raid your camp and take captives away and kidnap them and carry them off to their own village. And they could be freed if their nearest kinsman paid a ransom. It was not uncommon in ancient Israel and the surrounding cultures for a person also to fall into debt or to fall into deep poverty, and either to be put in prison for that uh, debt or else to have uh, himself or even his children sold into slavery on account of that debt. And once again, the nearest kinsman could redeem the person from slavery by the payment of a price. And by law and by custom, when that price was paid by that person, that enslaver had to let the captive go free. In the New Testament, the context shifts a little bit. 
And redemption always refers to slaves and the price paid to free a slave. So in using the word redemption to talk about God's people, Paul is saying something very important. Paul is saying that we are slaves by nature or that we are captives by nature. We start out in a position of captivity, a position, a condition of slavery. Every little baby that emerges from his mama's womb is a slave who needs to be redeemed. I was and you were. It's the default position of human life. Most people walk around their whole lives as slaves. They might think they're free because their chains are oftentimes invisible to them, but they're not. They're slaves. Well, what is the source of our default slavery? Who's got us? Who's got us? Who holds us in bondage? Well, the Bible talks about three things that we are slaves to in our natural condition. The first thing that holds us in bondage is sin. Sin. Jesus says, whoever sins is a slave to sin. That's in John 8, 34. And you say to yourself, I'm not a slave to sin. Okay, then prove it. If you're a drunk, stop drinking. Just say, I'm not going to drink for a whole solid year. I'm not going to touch a drop. And you start thinking about, well, I might be able to do it for a day or two, maybe a week. You know, I could quit if I wanted to. I just don't want to. Right. That's the problem. That's your chains. You're a slave to that, to that bottle. Or, or let's just say that you've got um, a sharp tongue. Nobody like that in this church. They all go to the other tabernacle down the road. You say, okay, well, I'm not, I'm not a slave to that. I can control my tongue. <laughs> try. Just, just try controlling your tongue. Only say what is good and edifying and true and necessary. Only say wise and kind things. No more harsh things. No more criticism. No more flattering. No more attention-seeking. No more avoiding No more judging and manipulating or controlling. No more lying. No more unwholesome words. Try. Control your tongue. James talks about that. He says, if anyone's able to bridle the tongue, he is a perfect man. The tongue is a a flame of fire. It sets things on fire all the time. Nobody can tame it. We've tamed all kinds. We can tame parrots and all kinds of dogs and animals and everything else, but nobody can tame the tongue. You say, well... That's kind of harsh, Brian. That's what the Bible says. You're a slave to sin in your tongue. Um, It's important that the Bible talks about sin in two closely related ways. It talks about sin or sins, very often in the plural, as an act, a discreet act, as a thought or as a deed that violates the law of God by either failing to do something that God commands or by doing something that God forbids. But sin is also an orientation. 
It's an orientation of your being away from God that causes you to want to commit sins. Now, you can think about it this way. When you've got a cold, you have symptoms that are manifest on the outside. You have a fever, you have a cough, you have a runny nose. Those symptoms are like sins. They are the outward manifestation of something that's going on inside of you. And you can take medicine that will suppress those symptoms, but the virus that's making you sick is still deep in your body. That virus is like sin. And when the drugs wear off, the cold reasserts itself. Your runny nose comes back. And all you've done is suppress the symptoms without touching the virus. And you might be able to suppress your sins your external evidences of what's going on in your heart for a little while under the right conditions when someone's watching or when it might be embarrassing to admit it. You might be able to apply a little to the medicine of self-control or effort and try harder, but the minute you let your guard down, the minute you get distracted, what's inside of you comes roaring back. And what's inside is deeper and it's darker and it's more deceptive and it's more pernicious than you realize. It's more like AIDS or Ebola than it is a cold. Now, there's a widespread misunderstanding in the church today that Jesus came simply to forgive the penalty of our sins, to relieve us from our guilt before God. And thank God that he does free us from sin's guilt he does that in what's called our justification, and we are declared righteous by God. That's the, the effect of the, of the passage that Wally read this morning from, from Romans, that we are justified by faith in his blood. That means to be declared righteous by God based on the righteousness of Christ, which is credited to us. But justification isn't the whole gospel, is it? We must also be purified from the inside. And that process is called sanctification. That's where he changes our hearts. But this is a process that takes both him working in us and us cooperating with him so that the amount of sin virus in our bloodstream is reduced over time. And we are, over time, more and more cleansed from sin's power and our that causes our symptoms then our outward sins to grow less frequent and less intense that's the that's the wonderful message of the old hymn rock of ages cleft for me there's that wonderful line in there be of sin the double cure save me from its guilt and power and when the world sees that, according to Jesus, and especially when it sees how that works itself out and how we treat one another as brothers and sisters in Christ, then it points the whole world towards Jesus and it shows the whole world how beautiful he is and how good life is with Jesus. And our lives then adorn the gospel. They give it credibility before the watching world. So would you like to be redeemed from your slavery to sin and not just from the penalty of your slavery to sin? Jesus wants to do that for you. What else are we a slave to? Well, we're also slaves to death. You see, the wages of sin is death. 
That's what Paul says in Romans 6.23. Your wages are what you earn from your work. You have a right to your wages. Or another way to put it is your wages are owed to you. And it's wrong, it's unjust to withhold the worker's wages for his work or her work. Well, the work of sin, which we're all busy with, which we can't quit doing, is death. Death is what sin earns. And a just God cannot withhold your wages from you. He has to give you what you've earned. He has to give you what you deserve. And because of that, you die. Your body dies, it sickens, it weakens, it ages, it stops working. But even worse, your spirit is dead too. It's dead to the goodness of the Lord. It's dead to the power of the Lord. It's incapable of shining as you were designed. As a lamp that's unplugged from the outlet is incapable of shining as it was designed to do. The lamp has no power in itself to shine. It only shines when it's connected to the mighty source of power through the electrical grid. And otherwise, it's worthless. To be dead in spirit is to be absent from God's power for all eternity. And spiritual death finds its culmination in physical death. It precedes physical death. It comes before it. When God told Adam about the fruit that he was not to eat, Uh, The passage in English says, in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. But in the Hebrew, it actually says, in the day you eat of it, dying, you will die. Dying, you will die. And when we look at what happened, we can see what God meant, can't we? They ate, and their souls died instantly. That inner radiance that they had that was theirs because they were connected to God and because they walked with God, that went out like a lamp unplugged from the wall. Their bodies went on living for decades and decades, but their bodies eventually died too. Death on the inside leads to death on the outside. And Jesus fixes that in exactly the same order. Our spirits, the invisible part of us that is the core of our identity, that that will continue on after our bodies cease, those spirits, they come to life in him when he saves us. And so we're alive on the inside, but outwardly we're still wasting away because God's not done yet. Our bodies still experience physical death, but here's the interesting thing that Jesus tells us. There's some of you that worry about dying, and there's some of you that have been with people you love who have died, and you've watched the process, and it's very distressing, and you think, they must be suffering so. Mm -mm. No, no, their body is. But the part of them that recognizes it as suffering and that would agonize over it, Jesus protects that. And Jesus actually says, hey, everyone who trusts me will never taste death. He says that in John 8. We won't taste death. We'll continue to exist as persons in the presence of God, perhaps not even realizing for a while that something's changed. But that's not the end. Heaven, when you die, is not the end. Because someday, our bodies will be transformed into something imperishable. They will be raised up. They will be brought back to life. Safe. 
Can I ask you this morning, has Jesus redeemed you from the slavery to death? Has he taken out your cold, dead heart of stone and replaced it with a living, warm heart of flesh and brought life to your inward man? If so, then you don't need to really worry too much about this wreck of a body that you've got. My body got a little more wrecked this week. It's been kind of a fun week. I had my fourth rotten birthday in a row. I spent it at a surgeon's office at Cleveland Clinic. You know what? We'll figure it out. But in the end, it's going in a hole in the ground until Jesus raises it up. That's okay. I don't need to worry too much about it. Take care of it. Try and honor God. Do what I can with it. Manage it the best I can. But if I squeeze a few extra years out of it, that's nice. But it's still going in a hole in the ground. In a thousand years, it won't matter that I got a few extra years or I lost a few extra years. Because I'll be alive forever. And so will you in Jesus. Are you in Jesus this morning? Has he freed you from slavery to death? Has he ransomed you? Well, what else does he ransom us from? Well, he ransoms us from sin. He ransoms us from death. And he ransoms us from the devil. You see, part of being born dead Part of being born enslaved is that you actually are slaves to the devil from birth. One of the things that modern Christians simply have not come to grips with, and particularly in America, I think, is how this world, by which I don't mean the planet, you know, the environment and all that, I mean the social, cultural, political, and economic aspects of human life as they are lived out on this planet, apart from God, how those are quite simply the kingdom of the devil. That is the kingdom of the devil. All of our little power structures, all of our little economic structures, all of our little education structures, all of our little kingdoms that we, that we join together and cooperate with one another or crash together and try and create something bigger so that we can manipulate, all of that is the kingdom of the devil. That's exactly what the Bible says. Let me say that again. Everything that lost human beings create in this world in order to try and make it on their own apart from God is the kingdom of the devil. And, and Jesus teaches us that clearly. Actually, the devil teaches us that clearly too. In the story of the temptation of Christ, we find this in Luke, where the, 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 the temptation where he takes Jesus up on a high mountain shows him all the kingdoms of the world in an instant and shows him all their glory. And he says, this is mine. And I will give it to whoever I want. And I will give it to you, Jesus, if you will fall down and worship me. It's been given to me. Well, who gave it? We did. Lost people did. Because they served the devil just by going about their daily lives. Their daily lives are his kingdom. And, and so everything out there that's in the world that's our way of getting by without God is the devil's kingdom. Like, like what, you say? Let me, let me give you an example. This is kind of out of left field, and I don't know if you'll think this is weird or not. But, but in the Bible, God gave us something that he created that was to be used as a medium of exchange and a store of wealth or 
what we call money. And in the Bible, God gave us gold and silver. And those functioned as money for thousands of years across all cultures in the world. And the supply of gold and silver is fixed. Pretty much all the gold mined is still in existence. And most of the silver that's been mined through history is still in existence too, though some of it was destroyed or consumed by industries like film photography companies, but those are mostly out of business these days. And the US Constitution actually legally defines a dollar as an amount of fine silver that is the equivalent of about seven-tenths of a troy ounce. And for a century and a half of American history, the price of gold was $20 per ounce. Now, it's interesting that when you actually look at the ratio of gold to silver, as it exists in the Earth's crust, there's about 19 ounces of silver for every ounce of gold. And so the ratio fixed by the Constitution is pretty close to what existed in nature. That's how you know that you're doing what God wants you to do when it aligns with its providences. And the paper money that was available at that time wasn't considered money, it was like a check. It was a certificate, not money. And you could take that paper dollar to the bank at any time and say, I'd like to exchange this paper certificate for real money. And they'd give you a silver dollar. Now, I actually, I'm, I got interested in this a long time ago, and, and I actually have here a $5 bill from 1934. And it says right here, $5, and it looks just like our $5 bills today, except it's got some little tiny print here at the bottom. And on, under the word $5, it says, $5 in silver payable to the bearer on demand. So it was never thought that this was money. It's the silver that was money. And this was kind of like a chit, kind of like a, a green stamp or something like that. And so you went to the bank anytime up to 1964 and turned in that piece of paper, they'd give you silver for it. And up until the time my grandfather was a teenager, you could take a $20 paper bill, like this one, and you could take that and you could go to the bank and you could say, I'd like to exchange this cute little piece of paper for real money. And they'd give you a, a coin that was an ounce of gold. You, you know, Christians have been worried for the last 30, 40 years about the one world monetary system and all these kind of things. We had a one world monetary system for thousands of years and God created it and it worked just fine. Today, um, if you, I've got something else here, right, here it is. This is a silver dollar. You remember these? You haven't seen any of those lately, have you? This one is a 1922 piece dollar. That's seven-tenths of an ounce of silver. So all the way up until 1964, that was a buck. You know how much this is worth today? About 30 bucks on eBay. And, and if you went and took this $20 bill and said, I'd like the amount of gold that this $20 bill would buy, it's less than one one-hundredth of an ounce of gold. It used to be a whole ounce of gold. And you say to yourself, okay, A, what happened? And B, why do I care? Well, what happened? First of all, it's, it's a complex story and it's a fascinating story. But basically what happened is that important people in high places across all kinds of nations 
set plans in motion that have taken decades and in some cases centuries to come to fruition. And those plans were explicitly designed to destroy God's system of money and his way of constructing an economy so that people flourished and that everything was held in check and balance. And they did that because God's way of doing things had built-in limits and they wanted to defy those limits and obliterate those limits because that helped them gain influence and power. Now that's how the world works. That's the devil's kingdom right there. Here's what God's given us. We're gonna break it. We're gonna do something else because when I do that, it gives me power. But it also takes power away from people. And they got, got power not just in the abstract. They got power over people in particular. Power over nations. Power over presidents and kings and prime ministers. Now, we think of the people who have money as being powerful, and they are, they have a kind of power, but the people who create the money and parcel it out and make one rich and the other poor, that's the real power. And that was God's prerogative in the beginning. And men took it to themselves. They said, we're gonna cast off what God's given us. It's worked for thousands of years. We're gonna cast it off and we're gonna do our own thing. And it enabled them to create wealth or the illusion of wealth out of nothing, literally nothing. And these people, um, these same people, they enabled, they financed the rise both of the Nazi state in the 1920s and 30s and the Soviet state at the same time. More recently, they financed the phenomenal rise of China. You know, I, I, I've been buying tools for a long time. Harbor Freight has always been an outlet for Chinese tools. And I have a few tools left that I bought from Harbor Freight in about 1989, 1990, some swivel sockets. They were junk. They were horrible. You go to Harbor Freight now and you buy anything, it's fine. It's good tools. And it's one-tenth of the price of what you used to pay. How did that come about? Well, it came about because people decided China's coming up next. We're going to raise China up. We've got purposes for that. In the process of doing that, they have destroyed the value of your labor right here in Youngstown, Ohio, and it's no longer possible for an ordinary working man to support his family on the job that he can get here. They've distorted the economies of whole nations. They've enabled a kind of warfare that's so destructive that no one would have imagined it 150 years ago. And they're financing the wrecking of the planet and the environment, and they just want growth for growth's sake. They created a system where it's cheaper to make your car's brake rotors in China and ship them across the Pacific and transport them to O'Reilly's on Market Street than it is to pay a steel worker in Youngstown to make the steel and a manufacturer in Youngstown to make the rotors. You think about that for a minute. It's cheaper to pay some guy on the other side of the planet and drag that thing all the way around the planet than it is to pay you to do it. But hey, you can get flat screen TVs from China cheap at Walmart. So there's that, right? And when the people who are doing all of this at the devil's bidding are finished, we will have completed a journey that was prophesied 2,000 years ago. We, we went from, I don't know why there's a pen in my pocket. 
We went from silver dollars to paper dollars to electronic digits on your phone or cards that have a chip in them. And what's probably coming next, it's already here at Whole Foods, you can pay now with your palm scan, biometrics, or some kind of chip like the chip they put in your dog to keep track of him when he gets lost. And the Bible talks about that. And in Revelation 13, 17, it says that the beast also causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark that is the name of the beast or the number of his name. In other words, the devil, 2,000 years ago, God foretold this, created a system in which you do what the people in authority want you to do, you say what they want you to say, you think like they want you to think, or you will lose your ability to make a living and pay your bills. Is that happening anywhere right now? Yes, it is. It's happening in China with what's called the social credit system. And the pieces are all in place. The means to do this anywhere exists right now. It was never technologically possible before. It is now. All that's lacking is the political will to combine the elements. When will that happen? I don't know. Could be five years. Could be a hundred years. But it will happen. And we know it'll happen because the Bible says so. And we don't need to imagine chips planted literally in our hands or tattoos of some kind of number on our forehead. The language of of Revelation could be symbolic. The forehead often indicates the mind or the will in Scripture. God charges the children of Israel of having brazen or bronze foreheads. It means you're hard-headed. You keep wanting to do what I don't want you to do. And the the right hand is, is the hand of power. It's what, you, it's, it's what you do. It's doing things. And so to have his mark on your hand and your forehead might just mean that you're of one mind with Satan, and one in action and purpose with Satan too. And that's just one example. This whole money thing is just one example, one small piece of the larger picture. All of our human systems are woven together by the devil, propelled by the spiritual energy of billions of malformed human souls. And they're used by Satan to glorify himself. And he controls them. And then here comes the Christian. In the middle, having to live in the middle of the kingdom of Satan. And and this is why James tells us that friendship with the world, meaning trying to use this world's system and this world's structures and this world's authorities to secure yourself and to advance yourself, to, be, to have friendship with the world is enmity with God. If you're the world's friend, you're an enemy of God. That's what the Bible says. And Jesus comes to set us free from all of that, to transfer us from this kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son, the kingdom of his marvelous light, to paraphrase Colossians 1.3. It's a kingdom where my God will supply all of my needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. It's a kingdom where we don't need to be anxious about anything. We don't need to be afraid of anybody. We don't have to compromise. 
We don't have to respond to pressure that chafes our conscience and robs us of our freedom and our dignity if we're redeemed. And what does he redeem you with? Not with pieces of paper, not with silver and gold, which are destined, says the Bible, to perish, but with his blood, his precious, precious blood, the most precious thing in existence. What does this mean? What does this look like when we actually live it out? I was thinking about this this morning. I was like, how am I, I going to wind this sermon up? And I had some thoughts. There's a great passage in Pilgrim's Progress and some other things like that. But as I thought about it, I was reading the, the scriptures this morning. And in Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 5, we see the world's slavery and God's freedom side by side. Jeremiah 17, 5. Thus says the Lord, cursed is the man who trusts in man and who makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. He's like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness in an uninhabited salt land. It's a picture of this terrible, dry, hot place. And somehow in maybe greener times, this plant has been able to grow up, but now it's drought. And it's just shriveling, slowly dying, dependent on something that it can't find, that it can't get. That's what it is to trust in people. That's what it is to bow to this world system. You're always on the edge of shriveling up, and Satan likes it that way. And if you start to get out of line, he's like, oh, there's a little water. It'll perk you up for a minute or two, and you're like, oh, thank you, thank you. And then you're right back at it. And he can take it away from you. That's what it is to trust in human beings, says the Bible. How is it different for us? But blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord, rather. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes, for its leaves remain green. And it is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. You know, one of my favorite places in all of South Dakota was this little town called Spearfish, and it's at the bottom of this canyon, and there's this beautiful creek that runs all from the top of the mountains down this canyon. It's called Spearfish Creek. And there's a park at the bottom of Spearfish Creek. And when, when there's a drought, you go out on the prairie. There's one, we're working on one now again. When there's a drought, you go out on the prairie, and it is hot and parched, and the wind, hot wind comes through, and it sucks the life out of everything, and the grass is brown, the bushes are brown, there's not a spot of shade anywhere, it is miserable. It's one of the, I, I can remember driving up to North Dakota to preach in an OPC church, and it, it was 108 degrees that day, and it hadn't rained in a month and a half. And I looked at that, and I was like, I hate this place. It's just miserable. And then when I get to, the, get to the church in North Dakota, the elder who's putting me up doesn't have air conditioning. It's 108. And the crickets were coming in. They had, so there was like crickets all over the house. And I was like, I 
hate this place. But even when it was like that out there, you could always go to that park and spearfish. And that, that spearfish creek ran through there and you'd see people fishing for trout and they'd be floating. And the trees, the trees were always in full leaf. And it was shady and it was cool. And it was beautiful. Because those trees were planted right next to the sweet, sweet water of Spearfish Creek. Let the drought come. Those trees didn't care. They've got a supply, a secret supply. Rain doesn't need to fall from the sky. They're not dependent on any uncertain thing. That creek is always flowing. That's what it is to be a child of God. That's what it is to live in his kingdom. You are plugged into supplies of power so that the world can go to hell around you and you can have no visible means of support. And God says, oh, we've been here before. I fed my children manna in the wilderness for decades. I made water come out from a rock. I made it so Moses could fast for 40 days. Not some nice little water, nothing. I sustained Elijah with a couple of muffins and two jars of water for a long journey for a month. I can do whatever needs to be done, says God. And my God shall supply all of your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus for them that trust him, who have disconnected themselves from the world's kingdom, the world's promises, the world's joys, the world's fears, the world's threats. The smiles of the world don't impress us. The frowns of the world don't impress us. They can't take anything away from us because we're planted by this stream of water that never fails. And when the rain doesn't fall and all the worldlings are going, oh, it's parched. Oh, we're getting trouble. Oh, no, no, no. We go, we're going to bear fruit this year in season. And our leaves are always going to be green because we're connected to God. That's what it means, loved ones, to be redeemed. You've been bought with a price. Trust in him, and he will watch over you always. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O oh, Lord, my rock and my redeemer.